But first, let's just get going with our first guest. The Supreme Court is getting ready to rule on a very interesting Second Amendment gun rights case. It's getting a lot of attention. It involves the question uh, of whether a federal law that prohibits the possession of firearms by persons who were convicted of domestic violence uh, restraining orders violates the Second Amendment. Does everyone have a right to a gun, even if they've been deemed to be a domestic violence abuser. And with us to discuss this case, the arguments on both sides, I want everyone to keep their their minds open on this, is law professor Andrew Willinger, who is the executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law. He is a frequent blogger on their blog, which is called Second Thoughts. Very clever. He writes and comments on the Second Amendment decisions and issues relating to guns. He has been quoted in an interview by CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, among other outlets. Professor Willinger, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be on. Thanks so much for having me. So let's get started by, can you tell our listeners the facts of this particular case? Sure. So this is a case called uh, United States versus Rahimi, um, where, as you mentioned, the the Supreme Court just uh, granted cert, so decided to take up the case. It'll be heard probably uh, oral arguments this fall and then decided next year. Um, And the facts here are that the case deals with an individual in Texas who is subject to an agreed civil protective order entered by a state court judge after allegedly assaulting his ex-girlfriend. So this is an order that made certain findings about uh, this assault, prevented uh, the individual, Mr. Rahimi, from coming within a certain distance of his ex-girlfriend, contained various other restrictions. And after the protective order was entered, uh, Rahimi proceeded to become involved in various criminal conduct. He discharged firearms on several occasions. He was involved in a road rage incident where he discharged a gun, uh, fired a gun in in the air at a restaurant. Um, And eventually the police identified him as a suspect in these subsequent incidents, investigated Um, found that he was in possession of weapons and also determined that he was subject to this protective order. And um, he was charged uh, under federal law. And this is a provision in uh, the federal code. I think, uh, you know, basically there are a number of uh, status-based prohibitions. So federal law says that if you, for example, if you are a convicted felon, you cannot possess a firearm. That's probably the most well-known. But there are a number of other uh, provisions within that same section of the law, and one of those says that if you are subject to certain domestic violence restraining orders, you are prohibited from possessing firearms. So that is the uh, statutory provision that's at issue in this case. And uh, Mr. Rahimi uh, filed a motion to dismiss his indictment, arguing that this provision is unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. Um, There's some procedural history that we don't really have to get into, but ultimately the circuit court agreed with him um, and found this provision to be unconstitutional, and that's the decision that the Supreme Court is going to review. Professor Willinger, has the provision regarding a convicted felon being barred from having a firearm, has that been upheld by our Supreme Court? So not specifically by the Supreme Court, although the Supreme Court has said uh, in sort of a non-binding way that it it believes that provision is presumptively constitutional. It's not totally clear what that means. Um, And there actually is a sort of budding uh, split among some of the circuit courts 
about whether that uh, felon prohibitor is constitutional. Usually those cases deal with individuals who have been convicted of nonviolent felonies, so things like uh, white-collar fraud, that type of crime. And, and in some instances, courts have uh, held that the law as applied to those un- those individuals is unconstitutional. Interesting. Let's take a break because I want to get into the meat of these arguments. It seems, I think, just reactively, when you talk to people on the street, of course the judge should be able to say, hey, this guy's a threat to a woman. It's been adjudicated. He's shooting off his firearm. It's it's a done deal. It, he should be able to there. You know, the law should be able to take care of this and protect people. But on the other hand, we have the Second Amendment is a very strong constitutional right. But and I want to talk a little bit about how constitutional rights can be limited. And in this situation and other situations, we're talking to Andrew Willinger. He is a professor of law at Duke. And we'll be back in a minute on WGN. Welcome back. We're here with Professor Andrew Willinger. He's a law professor at and executive director at Duke Center for Firearms Law. And we're talking to him about a case that the Supreme Court has uh, decided to take that talks about whether or not a domestic violence abuser can be barred from having a firearm. So, Professor, what are the arguments in uh, what are the arguments for the uh, Second Amendment rights advocates who are going to say that this Second Amendment is a broad constitutional right and you can't take it away for uh, for for having just because someone has a civil order of protection? Right. So this sort of brings us directly to a decision that the Supreme Court issued last June, so just over a year ago. It's a major Second Amendment case. It was the first time in over a decade that the court had decided um, a big case in this area. And it used to be under the prior uh, legal test that most lower courts had used that courts would consider things like whether the government had justified that a gun regulation was effective at, uh, you know, uh, an effective public safety measure, right? So effective at preventing gun violence and so on. Um, and the, co- the Supreme Court in this case last year, which is called Bruin, repudiated that aspect of the test and basically held that instead of deciding whether the regulation in question is narrowly tailored to the government's objective, public safety objective, courts could only consider whether the law is consistent with the historical tradition of gun regulation in the United States. Um, And so what this means, I think, uh, at at a basic level, is that instead of coming forward with things like uh, empirical studies showing that the law at issue is effective, um, instead the government now will have to come forward with historical laws from the 1700s, 1800s, that are sufficiently similar to the modern law at issue. So that's the new legal test. Um, And applying that test, the circuit court here found that there was no uh, similar historical tradition that could support this domestic violence restraining order ban. Um, So so, really it comes down to a matter of history. So again, you know, this is frustrating because in my view, back uh, when the Bill of Rights was drafted, women were chattel. Women didn't have, they barely had a right to get a divorce. 
uh, uh, marital rape was there was no such thing. They had no right to vote, of course, and they were in their father's care and authority until they married. And at that point, they were in their husband's authority and care. So how is it that there weren't even domestic violence laws? So how could there be some sort of similar historic carve out for domestic violence when there was really no acknowledged such thing back then? That's exactly right. And not only were there not domestic violence laws and were there not laws that disarmed domestic abusers, but there was a for a long time, at least around the time of the, that the Second Amendment was ratified, there was a right to marital chastisement. Right. So this wasn't even something that would have been viewed as a concern at the time. Um, and so I think, you know, th- this really comes down to a question of how how narrowly you look at the history. Right. Because, of course, if you if you look at the historical record and you're trying to find a law that is similarly addressing the problem of domestic violence by restricting access to guns, you're not going to find that. However, if you take a step back and maybe look at the historical record in a more abstract way, at a higher level of generality, then it could be that there's a historical tradition of, say, disarming dangerous individuals, right? Just a general tradition of laws that are targeted at people that the state may think are dangerous, and maybe that encompasses this modern law. Um, the Supreme Court, in its most recent decision that I mentioned from last year, did say that when you're dealing with unprecedented societal concerns, courts should use a more nuanced analysis. But admittedly, it's not really clear yet what that means. And, and again, living, breathing document, you know, back, I mean, the Supreme Court regularly rules on social media questions and things that we obviously didn't have back in the days of the Constitution being drafted or the Bill of Rights. So it just seems just it just seems illogical to say that if there is no similar carve out, we can't let this document breathe. I mean, there you know, our society is evolving and our society, you know, is getting more and more civilized, although these days I'm not quite sure I would agree with that. But, you know, you, you do have different standards of decency and different standards of compassion. And, and different interests being represented that we just weren't acknowledged back then. Um, so how, you know, d- does this make sense to you? I mean, and, and not all justices view it that way. Is that fair to say? I think, I think that's fair to say. I think there's still, I mean, there is a lot of confusion among the, the lower, lower court judges about how to apply this new test, I think, for many of the reasons that you identify, right? I mean, you see it, you see it here with the domestic violence issues, it comes up in other areas of Second Amendment law as well. If you imagine, for example, uh, bans on, on having guns in subways or in airplanes, airports, right? There just isn't going to be, you know, asking what the analogy is at the time of the founding is something of a strange inquiry. Um, and it's not really clear how courts are supposed to do that and what modern laws they can uphold and which, which ones they should strike down. Um, so I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that there's been a lot of confusion and also courts reaching conflicting outcomes. Um, because in, in this context specifically, some uh, lower court judges have upheld this domestic violence restraining order law and said that they, they found it to be consistent with, again, a more general historical tradition, even though you don't have laws that specifically target domestic violence at the time. 
Uh, I'm going to read the Second Amendment because when in doubt, go back and read the actual words, right? A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And again, without getting really into too much, too many of the weeds here, I, I listened to the arguments, um, uh, some of the arguments on, on this issue. And, and there are our first, are there Second Amendment advocates who say it says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It doesn't say the right of non-domestic violence abusers. It doesn't say the mentally sane. It doesn't say anything. It just says the people. And I guess that argument makes no sense to me because, of course, you don't let a five-year-old have a gun. And, of course, you don't let people who are clearly mentally ill have a gun. So, you know, is it is it could it be read that in that extreme way that the right of the people to have a gun shall not be infringed and that means all people? So I will say courts, some courts have done that. Um, I find that to be a very, very expansive reading. I think, you know, we do have some clues from the Supreme Court about what uh, the Supreme Court believes that this phrase, the people means. So the court has variously said that it's members of the political community, um, that it's law abiding, responsible citizens. Um, Not clear exactly what those terms, you know, how you would define those terms, but I think they would probably you know, they would exclude people like children, most likely. Um, I for, hope. <laughs> for somebody like a convicted felon. Um, but, but again, this is, this is sort of the first, this is sort of the first threshold step, right? So, so in these Second Amendment cases, when you're asking who's contained within the people, that's an initial inquiry, right? So the, the thinking is there are some people who are just outside the scope of the protection entirely. But there's still another step, which is even if, even if a certain individual is within the people, can that person be disarmed consistent with historical tradition? So the question is sort of at which, at which step of the analysis do you, do, you know, which step of the analysis is the operative one, right? For, for something like a, a ban on convicted felons possessing guns, some courts have said felons are just out, right? They're not part of the people. Other courts have, have reached the same conclusion, but they've done it at that second historical step. I've heard people say on certain news stations, well, you know, in order of protection, if, if someone really wants to kill their ex-wife, they could just take a baseball bat or a knife and do it. So, you know, taking away their gun is really not going to solve the problem. Is that any part of the legal analysis here? Uh, so, 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 no. I mean, I, I will say there are... Uh, that, that, that is, I, I think, refuted by, by studies showing exactly. that the direct access to a gun... Um, increases, you know, fivefold or tenfold the likelihood that domestic violence will escalate into domestic homicide. Um, so, I mean, I think there, there are absolutely studies that show that. Uh, I think, again, one of the things about this historical test that the Supreme Court has set forth for Second Amendment cases is that it makes that type of modern evidence a lot more difficult for courts to consider. I don't necessarily think it's out entirely, but it has to be translated through this historical lens so it, it, it's difficult to see how it would play a, a real substantive role in a case like this. Um, rather, again, the court is really just going to be trying to figure out how to analogize to historical laws. Just my notes here, and again, this is from the Internet, and I tried to get the, some good stats from reputable pollsters. Uh, one in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. Every month, an average of 70 women are shot and killed by an intimate partner. And there are nearly one million women in the United States alive today who reported having been shot 
at or shot by an intimate partner. And the trends are that this kind of violence is increasing. So given that backdrop, you know, I just find this to be a very important case. Um, And, you know, I want to talk Professor Willinger, there was actually was in our Tribune this morning. Uh, we have red flag laws here in Illinois where you can report somebody who's maybe being threatening, and and they can come in and and have a proceeding uh, where you get to defend yourself, and they can decide to take away your firearms on a temporary or a permanent basis. Um, and this was in response largely to our horrible Fourth of July Highland Park shooting that went on. Um, and these have increased. These red flag uh, situations have increased in number, and we're hoping that that's going to prevent, you know, if it prevents one person from not being shot. So if, if the court says that domestic violence abusers can have guns, do you think these red flag laws are also in jeopardy? So I think it's possible. I think if the court does reach that conclusion, um, I think it would be reasonable to think that other other prohibitions that are based on civil proceedings, which red flag laws, again, it's a civil, it's not a criminal proceeding, may also um, be suspect if that is the way that the court rules. Um, I guess I should say, I, I, I actually, I don't expect the court to do that. I expect the court to reverse the Fifth Circuit here um, and hold that the domestic violence restraining order law is constitutional. Um, I think how they get there is uh, an open question, but uh, we have a few clues. Uh, Justice Barrett, actually, uh, when she was on the, the circuit court, authored a decision uh, on a very similar issue on the felon, uh, the felon law. Um, and she said that, uh, I'm quoting here, she said, history is consistent with common sense and that there's a historical tradition of disarming dangerous individuals, even uh, those who are not convicted felons necessarily. Um, so I think you could see the court adopting some kind of rationale like that. And I hope you're right. Andrew Willinger, professor at Duke, thank you very much for joining us. Um, look at his Second Amendment uh, blog, the Duke Center for Firearms Law blog called Second Thoughts, and he's got an article upcoming in the Washington University Law Review. I'll post the link on my web- on the website here at WGN under the Karen Conti Show. Thank you for joining me, and we'll be back in a minute.